Yeah, how's life? Oh, it's been fine. Same old shit. A lot of really awesome birds around these parts. Ooh, that's cool. Saw my first indigo bunting the other day. We both did. Delicious. <laughs> so delicious. What a delicious sighting. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> my uh, folks have been regularly visited by Baltimore ghosts Orioles and past. buying ghosts. The scariest bird of all. <laughs> yeah. But, uh... Welcome to Super Superstitious. The <laughs> podcast about the science behind the spooky and strange. I'm Wyatt. I'm Jake. And welcome back to the boring stuff. That's <laughs> right. Uh, if you are just joining us for the first time after having listened to our appearance on Real Life Ghost Stories or their appearance on here, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. We love having you. And uh, hopefully you continue to like what we're doing. We tend to go for the goofy fun stuff when we can this episode is going to be a lot more on the kind of sciencey side of things and may suck. I don't know. <laughs> may suck. Oh. What Jake is trying to say, may suck the boredom right out of your That's brain. That's right. We are today going to tackle vaccines in general. This is coming off of Twitter user Sharklaser. Sharklaser78, in fact. Thank you for Shark the Laser suggestion. Sharklaser78 suggested we talk about Judy uh, Mikovits. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know much about her other than she is related to Andrew Wakefield. Jake's going to take care of her today. And by take care of her, I imagine spike her down into the darkest trash can available (laughs) in the house. And I'll be talking about Andrew Wakefield. And then we'll both talk about vaccines. And everyone can go home a little wiser, a little happier. And if you don't buy any of it, then you can just know that you don't need to listen to this show anymore. You can go get fucked. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Now, we assume... As far as talking about vaccine stuff, we assume there are not that many regular listeners to the show who are not into vaccinating and stuff. If you are in that camp, we hope we can kind of convince you where those ideas come from and why that shouldn't really necessarily be something you subscribe to. And if not, which I think is probably more likely for more of our audience, uh, you may have family members who feel this way. So this could be stuff that you could... Hopefully talk to them about and and maybe kind of help out with that. Sway their minds. Yeah, some compassionate artillery for the uh, never-ending battle against ignorance. Yes. This is not, we do want to specify, this is not the COVID cast. We're not going into COVID-19 stuff. You're hearing that from literally every direction, every hour of every day, and this is not meant to be that. But there's still stuff out there that is coming around that still kind of falls into our our purview, pseudoscience type stuff, and in cases like this, it can be dangerous. And uh, it is extremely du jour as we have also, just yesterday as of our recording of this podcast, a new article published in Nature, which is a leading scientific magazine or One journal, I should say. One of the two biggest in the world. In the world. There's that, Nature and there's Science. <laughs> go figure. <laughs> that article covers social media and the discussion, debate or, if you will, battle around pro and anti-vaccination stances Mm. and those in the middle who are undecided. We can talk about that later. I think, as it is an odd episode, I'm going first. That is correct. Which is perfect, because I get to sit at the table with Andrew Wakefield. But first, and for Phantoms most, (laughs) I simply cannot go on without mentioning a new brewery in western Massachusetts, one that combines elements of, Jake, do it with me. Heavy metal. D&D and and beer beer. to make something that I would personally refer to as beer. beer. (laughs) Very good beer at that. If you're in the New England area um, and considering a purchase of a brewed beverage, please consider buying for Phantoms. Mm -hmm. Just this week, they have freshly spelled with a PH unleashed their 2020 version of Purple Potion, Mm -hmm. which is a sour berry charged experience. For anyone looking to have their cheeks squeezed despite living in quarantine. And if you're a little wary of going out to these stores but are within driving distance of Western Mass before Phantoms is available for curbside pickup. Otherwise, do please consider supporting them by leaving a favorable and creative review at untapped, U-N-T-A-P-P-D dot com. If this helps incentivize you, if you leave a nice and fun review for them on on Untapped, Untapped. we'll read it on the show. There you go. Yeah, you want to get your goofy words out there? So thank you so much for Four Phantoms, and thank you all for listening, and uh, on into the stuff. Let's do it. So 
Andrew Wakefield. Mm. Um, for my segment today, I'll be drawing on and editing and stitching together a ton of considerations on the Wakefield saga. Mm-hmm. One is from The Guardian by Sarah Bosley. Another is published in the Indian Journal of Psychiatry by Rao and Andrade, last names, of course. And another is in IFL Science, which I don't know what that stands for, by Tom Hale. The Institute of Fun Learning, maybe? Oh, maybe that's what it is. They do have somewhat of an irreverent tone, so Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's probably what it is. Uh, But that said, there is a ton of published material in both news and proper sort of uh, peer-reviewed journaling covering the story which speaks to the gravity of it all. It Mm -hmm. is considered among the most, if not the most damaging medical hoax, um, hoaxes in the 20th century, and its effects have very much rippled into the 21st. So let's take it back, way back to 1998, which is uh, well before our current era, obviously defined by our reckoning with the implications of a reality in which folks need to tote around a large, crazy device designed specifically to somehow remove robot squid bugs from people's bodies through their (laughs) navels. During a period in which a British fellow by the name of Andrew Wakefield and 12 of his colleagues published a case series in The Lancet, which is a major medical journal. This paper suggested that the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine may have predisposed children to behavioral regression and pervasive developmental disorder. This is all despite an embarrassingly small sample size of 12 in uncontrolled study design and the wildly speculative nature of the conclusions. The paper still received very wide publicity. At the time, little was known about the causes of autism. The paper was dynamite. Parents recalled that their autistic children had been developing normally until they had the MMR. Just for the rest of the show, if I say MMR, that is referring to the uh, MMR vaccine. Mumps, measles, rubella. Exactly. Before long, MMR vaccination rates began to drop parents who were perhaps not versed in the methods necessary to discern careful scientific study flew into an otherwise understandable hysteria about an apparent clear risk of autism after vaccination. Almost immediately afterward, however, epidemiological studies, these are those um, having to do with one's health and happiness, essentially, from a medical angle, were conducted and published refuting the posited link between MMR vaccination and autism. The logic that the MMR vaccine may trigger autism was also questioned because a temporal link between the two is almost predestined, meaning they happen at the same time. Essentially, both events occur in early childhood. So around the same time that you are due for an administration of the MMR vaccine, if you are autistic, you will also begin to present autistic behavior, what have you. So it's easy to draw a false causal relationship. Right. So next was issued a short retraction of the interpretation of the original data by 10 of the 12 co-authors from the paper. You have most of the people involved being like, actually, no, we don't agree with this conclusion. Exactly. Which is a pretty big deal. That's a big deal. Yeah. When, uh, what is that there? Something like 95% of your (laughs) authorship is going, you know what? Um, wrong. 83%. 83%? Yeah. <laughs> Still good. Um, solid B. Uh, so according to the retraction, quote, no causal link was established between MMR vaccine and autism as the data were insufficient, which calling the data insufficient is diplomatic. 12 individuals does not a medical study make in the least. This was accompanied by an admission by The Lancet that Wakefield and his colleagues had failed to disclose financial interests. Mm -hmm. It turns out, damningly, that Wakefield had been funded by lawyers who had been engaged by parents in lawsuits specifically against vaccine-producing companies. So, if it's not apparent already, this is very much a glaringly obvious example of what we refer to as a conflict of interest. Yes. However, The Lancet exonerated Wakefield and his colleagues from charges of ethical violations and scientific misconduct, which is just astounding to me. Yeah, and also saying saying that the the data were insufficient is also science speak for, oh, we this isn't good enough. It sounds like a technicality, but it's really saying we made conclusions and we shouldn't have this is bad. 
Right. So a lot of what's happening in this saga does sound like really nitty gritty kind of pointless things that don't have broader implications outside of just research science and stuff. But it's actually it's it's a bigger deal than that. So and we'll we'll kind of I think each as we go Expound through each stage we that. can we can yeah explain the impact of of the parts that happen. So keep going. Right. Carrying on, the Lancet only completely retracted the Wakefield et al. paper in February of 2010. 12 long years after first publication, finally admitting that several elements in the paper were incorrect, contrary to the findings of the earlier investigation. Uh, Wakefield and his colleagues were also held guilty of straight-up fraud, having committed not only ethical violations during their study, for example, having conducted invasive investigations on the children that were part of their sample group without obtaining the necessary ethical clearances, but also scientific misrepresentation. They reported that their sampling was consecutive when, in fact, it was selective, which in other words means that rather than accepting any and all possible candidates suitable for their study, as you would do as a good scientific investigator, mm. uh, they cherry pick their data, accepting only those points that would sell the story that they wanted to tell already going into their work. So these are basically two of the vilest crimes that you can commit as a scientist. <laughs> Uh, and the reason they're so abhorrent, I mean, it might sound like, so what, you know, they yeah. didn't, they didn't get ethical clearance. Clearly the kids weren't like hurt or something. And so what if they picked data? Yeah, again, it sounds like technicalities, but right. The science as a practice is ostensibly a fundamentally consensual group effort to determine the functional roots of reality. Exactly. <laughs> We're trying to get as close to what is objectively true about our universe as possible. So when personality gets in the way, when preference or opinion step in, such as picking the data you want to see rather than whatever is actually there, mm -hmm. or not getting suitable clearance from boards that are there specifically to protect the space you're in and the people involved, mm -hmm. is basically a crime against reality <laughs> <laughs> right and another problem with cherry picking data like that is not only are you steering the results towards a conclusion a preconceived conclusion rather than following all of your data to where they actually lead on their own in this case the conclusion he was kind of pointing things towards was one that he actually had a financial stake in yeah it's even more damning i mean everyone Everyone in the world who has ever tried science, I think, knows the sort of siren call of what, what you know, you get in your mind an expectation about what this study might reveal. Mm -hmm. It's easy to want to see what you want to see and to look for that in your data set. Yeah. But ultimately, and this is something everyone forgets, we're doing science to disprove our hypothesis. Exactly. <laughs> we want to see if we can make it break. Uh -huh. And if it doesn't break well, dang it, I guess we have to accept it that this is still the best possible explanation for what might be going on here. And even then, we don't say that it's proven true. We just say, right. oh, we couldn't disprove it, so it seems to still be supported. Exactly. So to not only be looking for proof of what you expect, but to be doing so with motivation of financial gain. Exactly. <laughs> to then be cherry-picking data from an embarrassingly small sample size of 12, which mm -hmm. wouldn't even get a paper published in just a general scientific journal these days, let alone mm -hmm. fucking medical. I cannot believe The Lancet somehow published this. Yeah. With so much implication for damage to the public because it is medical research mm -hmm. is just, you know, gobsmackingly uh, horrible. What we're getting at is this is the origin of the um, notion that vaccines can cause autism. Exactly. And it sounds really esoteric to the general public to be told, oh, well, the paper that first said that was retracted. What does it even mean? Right. The paper was taken out again. Okay, well, whatever. So it sounds like Big Pharma or something wanted uh, to hide that information. It's like, no, no. Having a paper retracted as a scientist is a huge deal. Exactly. You have done an experiment. You've done some kind of research you've arrived at conclusions you have sent that in for peer review which means other people in your field have looked it over and decided whether or not they think it is actually valid and then somehow you've gotten past that process and then gotten it published and then afterward 
people have looked at it and said, no. Wait a minute. It's not because, oh, people have later found, oh, actually, we couldn't support that same conclusion, so it's it's not the most up-to-date information. That happens all the time. That's a very important part of the scientific process. Exactly. You make conclusions, and then later on, people may find totally contrary conclusions, and you may end up finding, oh, actually, that first paper was wrong. It doesn't get retracted when that happens. It's the paper trail of like our developing understanding of a field stays there. It only gets retracted when you have done something truly wrong in your process to begin with, and it shouldn't even be out there to be read anymore. Exactly. It looks, and it's, it is costly for everyone, and as, as I will, as we'll soon see, how about that? Mm-hmm. They have retracted the paper, and not only that, Wakefield is now, and colleagues are now caught out as having done some of the biggest no-nos in the scientific world. Mm-hmm. Following this, the British Medical Journal published a series of articles on the exposure of Wakefield's fraud, and as noted rightly by Rao and Andrade, it is a matter of serious concern that the expose was a result of journalistic investigation rather than academic vigilance, hmm. uh, followed by the institution of corrective measures. So it's it's kind of like a grand shame on the Lancet. Um, <laughs> the 2010 retraction was itself published as a small anonymous paragraph in the journal on behalf of the editors and in my own opinion stands as a great and further shame to the lancet which is a major medical journal and could have and should have taken more authority or even pride in amending their earlier intellectual face plant yes you know what i mean like if you really want to stand for academic and medical integrity if you make a mistake you want to be like everyone come into the room sit down we've made a huge error we want to own that error and like make ourselves an illustration of how much we care about this sort of thing rather than just like shadily sweeping it under the rug like we rejected the paper you know exactly. what i mean yeah, like, it, it come makes more on. sense to get in front of the story and be like hey this was our bad but we're now going to be the ones really shouting out here's what's wrong and we should all know about it rather than like, uh, yeah, that one was not a thing. Anyway, moving on. Exactly. So scientists, furthermore, scientists and organizations across the world spent a great deal of time and money simply refuting the results of this overblown and at the time minor and fraudulent paper. However, parents across the world still do not vaccinate their children out of fear of the risk of autism. And this has led to continuous measles outbreaks in the UK such as those in 2008 and 2009, as well as pockets of measles throughout the U.S. and Canada, all of which have been attributed to the non-vaccination of children. So, if he were anything close to a decent person, Wakefield could have taken the medical establishment's criticism on the chin, accepted that he might be wrong, and continued with an otherwise relatively promising career. Outside of this whole thing, up until that date, he was, you know, just another medical academic on his way yeah but it is important to remember that wakefield is human garbage (laughs) if wakefield ever had the normal uncertainties of a scientist embarking on research wondering what their investigations will prove that must have been pulverized by what was essentially an avalanche of criticism over the lancet study so yeah jake and i are certainly not the first people to uh, dress him down for what went on Uh, He and those around him now believe there is a massive conspiracy to force vaccines upon children driven and funded by the wealthy pharmaceutical companies and those who take their money. And he has apparently made it his life mission to continue this anti-vax campaign. In 2010, the same year of his paper's official, if badly belated, retraction, Wakefield was struck off the medical register and forbidden from practicing, which is essentially the ultimate disgrace for a doctor. So yeah, you can't practice medicine anymore. You did something so bad, you can't even yeah. do that. So And you know, what, what an amount of effort and work to earn a title that has now been removed. It is, it is an ultimate punishment for sure. Yes. He disappears to the U.S. and... At the time, it was kind of assumed that he had just gone to ground, having lost all credibility and any kind of public appeal. And at the time, it was known that he was in Texas within a community of those who shared his views. So he kind of just retreated to conspiracy land. Was he in Waco, Texas? (laughs) Probably. Uh, And it was not until your boy Donnie T was elected U.S. (laughs) president that Wakefield had his 
re-Wakefielding. <laughs> Under an anti-establishment presidency, Wakefield's views, as with almost all conspiracies, have become only more entrenched and embraced mm-hmm. following his thorough dressing down at the hands of eminent scientists around the world. Wakefield is now back in the limelight. One of President Trump's inaugural balls in January of 2017, he was quoted as contemplating the overthrow of the pro-vaccine U.S. medical establishment in words that brought to mind Trump himself. Mm -hmm. Quote, what we need now is a huge shakeup at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. A huge shakeup. We need that to change dramatically, end quote. To his credit, Wakefield's baseless and damaging suggestions have successfully gotten a lot of people sick. Many worried parents in the U.S. and Europe continue to shun the MMR vaccine, fearful that it could precipitate autism in their child in spite of all the reassurances of the World Health Organization and public health authorities around the world. Worldwide, according to the WHO, which is World Health Organization, there was a fourfold increase in measles cases during 2017, with large outbreaks in one in four countries. Hmm. Loss of confidence in the MMR vaccine, which is very effective, was blamed. Now, like the pig demon in charge of the U.S., <laughs> uh, Wakefield is drafting off of the tendency for those on the internet and social media to spread vaccine doubts and conspiracy theories around the world, billing them as an alternative to the, quote, failings of mainstream media, which is such a tired, tiring statement. The anti-vax conspiracy theories are now only gaining further momentum in the face of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic that we're collectively facing as a species. Mm -hmm. And I think from my cursory readings, Jake, this sets you up to take it away with Judy Mikovits. I will, yes. Um, I want to kind of conclude the Wakefield stuff by just, again, reiterating this is the reason you've heard the idea that vaccines cause autism. It all came from yes. this one study by this guy exactly. in the 90s who didn't take the proper measures in doing a study, who had way too small a sample size, and who in fact just totally falsified shit to get the results he wanted in order to get money from people with a specific interest in him finding those conclusions. Exactly. I have a bonus tidbit here. Okay. For anyone out there needing an ultimate clapback for doubting friends or relatives, there is a recent open access publication by Carlo, I'm going to try to do his last name, Pietrantonge. His last, it ends with a J, maybe it's mm. a silent J, and his colleagues that considers 138 studies on MMR vaccine. Wow. That's 138 studies with a combined total clinical data set of... 23,480,668 children. Wow, that's a lot more than 12. Quite a bit more. <laughs> um, this is open access as well, so you should be able to download it. If not, um, we can even just maybe link a PDF on this oh, yeah. episode's page. Totally. And uh, no fucking surprise, based on real hard data from hundreds of thousands of children, Pietrantonge and colleagues conclude that MMR vaccines do not cause autism. Mm-hmm. MMR vaccines do not cause encephalitis, which has also been proposed. Mm-hmm. They don't do much of anything except prevent your child from getting measles, mumps, <laughs> or rubella, <laughs> which is a preventative medical success that is so thorough and wonderful that those three diseases almost sound like nonsense words, I feel like now. <laughs> yeah. We so don't have to deal with that shit in most places thanks to these vaccines that to say them out loud, you're like, oh, measles, mumps, rubella? Like, what are you even talking about anymore? That's a great thing to be able to say. Yeah. <laughs> These are diseases that cause horrible medical complications or death that last <laughs> that last a lifetime. <laughs> they cause death that lasts a lifetime. That's let me tell right. you. <laughs> and sometimes even longer. Yeah. So what is a vaccine? How are they supposed to work? These are very important considerations. We're trying to talk about how important it is to vaccinate your kids and why vaccines aren't dangerous, uh, but it would make sense for us to describe what vaccines actually do and how they work. So why don't we turn to some slightly abridged and edited language from the CDC itself. So the idea behind vaccines is to help give you immunity to these diseases but immunity is something that we also know comes from uh, our immune system. We're able to kind of fight off infections. That's the whole idea. It's, it, our immune system is our body's defense against infections. To understand how vaccines work, it's good to look at just how our bodies do this stuff themselves. 
So when germs, bacteria, viruses, stuff like that get into our body, they attack and multiply. This invasion into our bodies, we call it an infection, that's what causes us to get sick. The immune system uses several tools to fight infection. Uh, our blood contains red blood cells for carrying oxygen to tissues and organs and white or immune cells for fighting infection. These immune cells consist primarily of macrophages, B lymphocytes, and T lymphocytes. So macrophages are specialized white blood cells that swallow up and digest germs plus dead or dying cells. Basically, anything in your body that doesn't look quite right, doesn't look like normal functioning healthy stuff, gets fucked up by macrophages. They will then leave behind parts of the invading germs called antigens. It's kind of fragments of what they had kind of torn up. The body identifies antigens as dangerous and then stimulates antibodies to attack them. Uh, then we have B lymphocytes. They play defense. They produce antibodies that attack the antigens left behind by the macrophages. And finally, T lymphocytes, which I think are also called helper T cells. Is that correct? Right, right. Um, they back up B lymphocytes and macrophages by attacking cells in the body that have already been infected. The first time the body encounters a germ, it can take several days to make and use all those germ-fighting tools needed to get over the infection. Uh, during this time, we can get super sick. The germ cells may be so damaging and so rapidly reproducing that we suffer lasting damage after recovery or our bodies are never able to manufacture enough tools to successfully combat the disease. But if and when we do survive, the immune system remembers what it learned about how to protect the body against that particular disease. So it takes some time for all those tools to kick in and help us get better. Right. If the disease isn't bad enough and we do get better, then we're left with some uh, some stuff to help us out going forward. The body keeps a few T lymphocytes called memory cells or helper T cells that can go into action very quickly if the body encounters the same germ again. Manages to kind of make these sort of signposts of like, this is the bad thing. This is what it looks like. So if it comes again, we now know <laughs> how to handle it. Wanted. Dead. Exactly. So when those familiar antigens are detected in the future, B lymphocytes produce antibodies to attack them much more quickly. Super cool. So vaccines prevent diseases by imitating an infection without actually getting you fully sick. Mm -hmm. um, so this almost never causes illness, but it does cause the immune system to produce these helper T cells and antibodies that are so critical for defense against a viable disease germ body in the future. This imitation infection can occasionally cause some minor symptoms just because your body is kind of like going into that manufacturing immune process. So you might get a bit of a fever, but these are to be expected mm -hmm. um, during that immunity process. Once the imitation infection goes away, though, like I've just mentioned, the body is left with a supply of memory T lymphocytes as well as B lymphocytes. And uh, you'll be that much better capable of fighting off infection in the future so you are effectively immune thanks to vaccination mm -hmm. however i mean there is occasionally cases where a person will receive a vaccine but then actually catch the disease mm -hmm. uh, during the sort of ramp up period that's kind of an unfortunate scenario but it does occur on occasion um, so they may still actually get the disease, but that will be due to unfortunate incidents rather than the vaccine miraculously making you ill. Yeah, it's because it takes some time to kick in. That's why during flu season, you should get your flu shot sooner rather than later. Exactly. And the quality of your body needing to manufacture these tools is also why some vaccines require more than one dose. So, I mean, mm -hmm. I've heard some folks say like, well, I like the concept of vaccines, but it's kind of a pain in the ass to have to go and get like a booster shot or take multiple doses or what, what have you. Yeah. But there are actually four reasons that folks in general, especially babies, receive multiple doses of the same vaccine. Mm -hmm. So number one, for some vaccines, the first dose sometimes does not provide as much immunity as is possible. So more than one dose will be needed to build a more complete immunity to that bug it's a kind of fake version of the disease so it's not going to have as big an effect on your body as the full-blown disease so then it may not also give you the full immunity afterward right exactly which again getting two jabs in the arm is a lot better than possibly getting like smallpox or something right for other vaccines after a while immunity just simply wears off so at that point, you'll need your booster. This is true of things like tetanus, and that brings immunity levels back up. Mm -hmm. And in these cases, 
again, like with tetanus, uh, booster doses usually occur every several years after an initial series of vaccine. For still other vaccines, this is our third reason here, uh, studies have shown that more than one dose is needed for everyone to develop the best immune response. So, Mm -hmm. for example, after one dose of the MMR vaccine, some people may not develop enough antibodies to fight off infection. So a second dose just kind of helps to make sure that almost everyone is protected. And finally, the fourth reason you might need to get multiple jabs, this gets back to what Jake was mentioning about flu vaccines. Some kinds of disease that we sort of collectively refer to as uh, flu, for instance, the germs causing that occur as many, many different strains. They're either constantly mutating or there's just many different extant versions out there. So you'll need to likely get a newly made vaccine every year, which is going to be specifically designed to target that strain of that disease or illness. Some people might get the argument, oh, well, that's just a way for people who make the vaccines to make money. Oh, you need to get a new one every single year. Well, that seems right. like designer you know, vaccines, planned obsolescence of the right, vaccine. Exactly. Or something. Like, no, it's people who know their shit following patterns and seeing, okay, which strain of influenza is the big one this year. It seems like this is the one that's going to be spreading the most. Okay, let's make a vaccine that'll help protect the most people from that version of it this year. And we'll do the same thing next year and just keep trying to watch what happens. Exactly. And because these vaccines need to work well, they need to work right, and they have such dire medical implications it takes a very, very long time to develop them in general, um, which is, again, why you'll hear in the news folks discussing how the time frame on the COVID-19 vaccine could be as much as two years. Mm. It's not enough to just develop the vaccine itself. You have to test it in many more than just 12 people, let's say, yep. and figure out what are all the side effects that might occur with this vaccine because you can have off-target effects. And, you know, you want to pick the vaccine that's going to work most effectively, be cost-effective to manufacture, and that can be made widely enough available to, at this point, a global population. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that just takes time. Yes. So, yeah, some people believe that your naturally acquired immunity, immunity from having the disease itself, is better than the immunity provided by vaccines. It's definitely a case being made by economists in America. Exactly. (laughs) The death cult. Uh Uh-huh. However, natural infections can cause severe complications and, as should be a surprise to no one, can be deadly. Uh, The immunity you end up with is functionally identical in your body whether you get the disease or get a vaccine, but in one case you get sick and your body suffers damage, and in the other don't so getting the disease is usually a bad option if you can be just as immune without getting sick why wouldn't you want to do that this is true even for diseases that many people consider mild like chicken pox Mm. for decades Mm. we all thought it was fine and dandy to just let kids catch it to get over with like if oh if someone in your class in kindergarten has chicken pox oh you should arrange a play date with them so that they'll you'll catch it too so just to get it over with (laughs) sooner rather than later because then you'll never get it again but this is dangerously untrue (laughs) <laughs> the virus for chickenpox stays inside your nervous system forever once you catch that disease. Wow. And it can come back out again, only worse. I take it from someone who had shingles in middle school. It Woo. sucks so much. And when that happens, it's the same virus coming back out. Usually it gets flared up by some kind of stress on the body. My guess is this is between 7th and 8th grade, which is when I had my growth spurt. I grew like 4 inches that summer, I think. Weird shock on your body when that happens. And uh, I think that's what caused my nervous system to be like, whoa. And so the chicken pox virus came back out. And when that happens for shingles, it usually comes out in a particular nerve area. And it'll tend to go from one side around your torso to the other side to kind of make a semicircle around you. And so for me, it was like the upper part of my chest around my shoulder to the middle of my back. And it hurts so much. I cannot overstate how badly it hurts i think it may have been the most painful thing i've experienced i had so much trouble sleeping like even taking pain medicine for it and that's because i had chicken pox when i was little right with the chicken pox vaccine you don't get the actual disease so it doesn't stay in you the rest of your life but the immunity does so right that stuff is important with even ostensibly mild diseases like that it is impossible to predict who will get serious infections that may lead to hospitalization too because yeah chicken pox can kill you it's true Uh, vaccines like any medication can cause side effects but none of them are autism and most if any are mild Uh, even with advances in healthcare, 
the diseases that vaccines prevent can still be very serious and vaccination is the best way to prevent them. So there you go. Some conception of how vaccines work. Hopefully most folks out there, this will just be a refresher of things you already understand and appreciate very much. And uh, for others, perhaps this will be a gentle eye opener to why vaccines are fine and not some kind of insane conspiracy. However, um, unfortunately, we're living in an era where the internet and social media, as was mentioned during my Andrew Wakefield segment, is providing a lot of fuel to conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Highly apropos of today's episode, an article was just published in Nature yesterday, May 13th, as of our recording, 2020. Um, the authors summarize their work in the abstract as follows, and then I'll give us a breakdown of what they're talking about. Quote, homemade remedies and falsehoods are being shared widely on the internet, as well as dismissals of expert advice. There is, however, a lack of understanding about how this distrust evolves at the system level. This is all with regard to vaccines and immunity in general. Mm -hmm. Here we provide a map of the contention surrounding vaccines that has emerged from the global pool of around 3 billion Facebook users. So talk about a data set. Mm. Its core reveals a multi-sided landscape of unprecedented intricacy that involves nearly 100 million individuals partitioned into highly dynamic interconnected clusters across cities, countries, continents, and languages. What they're saying here is if you look at user interaction data, which I'm sure is extremely complex, but just to give you an idea of what they're looking at here, if you look at the network, interconnected network of all these users and sort of see how they're tied to one another through their commenting or messaging and things like this, you get sort of a topography, a landscape of connectedness that they're describing as highly dynamic and spanning the globe. So Mm. as you might expect with, you know, hundreds of millions of people talking to one another, they go on, although smaller in overall size, anti-vaccination clusters, specifically groups of people, manage to become highly entangled with undecided clusters Mm. in the main online network, whereas pro-vaccination clusters are more peripheral. Our theoretical framework reproduces the recent explosive growth in anti-vaccination views and predicts that these views will dominate in a decade. In other words... Undecided folks, folks who are out there, they're referring to them as clusters here, but that's just sort of network speak for groups of individuals. Mm -hmm. Although there are fewer folks who hold a strongly anti-vaccine position in the world right now, Mm -hmm. at least looking at this social media outlet, they tend to overlap a lot more and a lot more centrally with many, many folks who are undecided about vaccines. Yes. So although there are more folks of a pro-vaccine opinion, which is great, they're much less likely to be engaged with people who don't have a set opinion yet. And so they may not be influencing them so much going forward. They go on. Insights provided by this network framework that they've created can inform new policies and approaches to interrupt this shift in t- toward negative views. Our results challenge the conventional thinking about undecided individuals and issues of contention surrounding health, shed light on other issues of contention such as climate change, and highlight the key role of network cluster dynamics in multi-species ecologies. So they're kind of trying to build their conclusions more broadly now for a wider audience, but essentially they're saying we're kind of on to why denialism in general, conspiracy theory in general, they're not really using that language, and that's maybe not exactly what they're saying, but it could be argued, gets such a foothold Mm. in social media, which is that it just sort of so happens that folks who are undecided tend to get bunched together during the networking, the social networking itself, with folks who have denialist or negative views about things such as vaccination or climate change, both of which are things that are supported by science, but tend to catch a lot of flack from certain communities. And we can link to this article as well. Yeah. But yeah, hopefully with continued efforts to correct wrong conceptions about vaccines and modern medicine in general, Jake and I, as well as anyone out there listening, can help to invalidate this prediction of (laughs) a firmly anti-vax opinion in, you know, another 50 years or whatever they said. A decade, I think they said. In a decade. Oh my God. I'm so optimistically trying to spin it here. (laughs) Good Lord. Um, So yeah, there you have it. Mm -hmm. So Jake, you want to tell me a little about Judy? Yes. So with all this... Judy, not Garland Mikovitz. That's right. With all this stuff in mind uh, regarding vaccines and stuff, I'm following the unfortunate logical progression 
of all of this kind of mindset, which is people who continue to spread bullshit under the guise of expertise, especially with regards to virus stuff. Specifically, I'm talking about Judy Mikovits, again, based on the suggestion of Sharklaser78. Thanks, Sharklaser78. Thank you, Sharklaser78. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, everything out there about Mikovits is either here are the things she has said that are wrong, or else just is the wrong stuff that she is saying. Consequently, (laughs) this initial background I'm going to give on her biographically sort of is going to be unabashedly pulled from Wikipedia. Sure. But I'll be adding some spice from uh, scientists, the number four, wiredtech.com. Ooh, my favorite rack. (laughs) Uh, Either way, most of the information is unfortunately coming from Mikovitz herself. So who the hell knows? Um, She got a Bachelor's of Arts in Chemistry in 1980 from the University of Virginia. From 1986 Mm -hmm. to 1987, she went to Upjohn Pharmaceuticals in Kalamazoo, Michigan to work as a laboratory technician and then apparently left because of a disagreement with the company over their bovine growth hormone product. I couldn't find more information about that, Hmm. uh, nor could I find any Upjohn jokes, unfortunately. In 1988, she worked as a lab tech at the National Cancer Institute, the NCI, Mm -hmm. in Frederick, Maryland, under Francis Ruschetti, who later served as her PhD supervisor. In 1991, she completed her PhD in biochemistry from George Washington University with a thesis entitled Negative Regulation of HIV Expression in Monocytes. Hmm. These are some solid institutions. Yeah, so far, so good. She then worked as a postdoctoral researcher for David Durst from 1993 to 1994. In 1996, she was working again in Ruschetti's leukocyte biology lab at the NCI. Uh, May 2001, Mikovitz left the NCI to work at Epigen X Biosciences, a drug discovery company in Santa Barbara. So she decided to go into industry. Mm -hmm. Late 2005, so four years later, she was bartending at the Pierpoint Bay Yacht Club in Ventura, California. Uh Uh-oh. I had to know more about this career (laughs) shift. I had to dig around and end up finding this kind of... After all that. Yeah, um, it was in a kind of biography thing I managed to find about her. It turns out that she and her husband wanted to be part of that yacht club and one of the ways to join, other than paying some dues, like they had reduced cost dues if you work there on a volunteer basis. Wow, holy shit. She was working there as a bartender part-time so that they could be members of that yacht club. Was she still part of uh, Epigen X at this point? I am not sure. I didn't really say. I would guess... Perhaps yes. Um, I don't. It wasn't that she was just straight up no longer a scientist and now a bartender. I see. As yeah, it made it, it sound. Like, like, that, like, like she got burned right. out. Right. right. So that was not the case. So this is when her story properly begins. Gotcha. So I'm going to stick to just a chronology here, but I'll also bounce between my different sources for some contrast here and there. Sure. Um, we'll add to that list of sources an article from RetractionWatch.com. Oh boy. No, no red flags there. Nope. Uh, so we left off <laughs> with her bartending. dedicated to red flags. <laughs> right. So we left off with her bartending in 2005. Uh, in 2006, Mikovitz became director of the Whittemore-Peterson Institute for Neuroimmune Disease and collaborated again with Ruschetti, her former boss, then PhD advisor, and then boss, uh, searching right. for the cause of chronic fatigue syndrome, also known as CFS. Mm. Mikovitz discovered that 67% of affected women carried a virus called xenotropic murine leukemia-related virus. XMRV mm. that appeared in healthy women only 4% of the time. XMRV is also associated mm. with prostate, breast, and ovarian cancers, leukemia, and multiple myeloma. Whoa. Many women with XMRV bore children with autism. Whoa. In 2009, Mikovitz and Ruschetti published their explosive findings in the journal Science. But the question remained, how was XMRV getting into people? Mikovitz suggested right. that XMRV was presented in the MMR, polio and encephalitis vaccines given to american children and soldiers uh-huh. according to her xmrv came from mouse tissue could spread rapidly and was getting into all of our vaccines because of tests performed on mice it was just contaminating huh. the hell out of everything dr fauci yes that dr fauci ordered mikovitz to keep her <laughs> mouth shut what reason could he have for <laughs> doing that shut up uh, w- when she refused, he illegally confiscated her workbooks and hard drives, drove her from government work, and blackballed her from receiving NIH grants, ending her science career. Wow, the Fouch man. It's the kind of thing that a single person absolutely has the ability to do, especially given the unchecked unilateral power afforded by the Office of... Let me just check my notes. 
chief of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Oh, boy. An institute known for totally uh, shutting down people Tyrannical, forever. Uh, uh-huh. smashing, yeah. Anyway, pretty bold and extreme action, and Mikovits has been shunned by the science community ever since. Thanks right. a lot, Fauci. Yeah, really, geez. But just for the hell of it, let's bounce back to 2006 again real quick. Mikovits' main deal is her work with xenotropic murine leukemia-related virus, XMRV, right. and the research she did with the Whittemore Peterson Institute, or WPI. Mm-hmm. Let's check that out again from a different angle. All right. Rewind the clock. Yes. Harvey and Annette Whittemore were frustrated by how little was known about chronic fatigue syndrome, CFS. Uh, Their daughter was someone who suffered from it, and they wanted to know, why can't we figure out how to cure this? Why don't we know where it comes from? So they created the Whittemore-Peterson Institute in 2005 with the intent of funding research specifically into this. Right. So far, so reasonable. Yeah. Mikovits became the research director in 2006. Everyone's hope at the center was to find a viral cause for CFS. But in their research, this just wasn't panning out. They weren't finding anything like that. In 2007, Mikovitz met Robert Silverman at a conference. Silverman was a co-discoverer of XMRV. He had found Hmm. XMRV genetic sequences in prostate cancer specimens several years earlier. It also turned out that the XMRV sequences were highly similar to mouse genomic sequences. Using tools obtained from Silverman, Mikovitz began to look for XMRV in her CFS sample. So she heard about it from him and thought, well, maybe that's the answer and started looking for it. In late 2008, a graduate student who she subsequently hired as her lab tech got two positive results from a group of 20 samples. So he and Mikovitz tweaked the experimental conditions until all the samples came up positive. Uh-oh. I tried to look more deeply into what they meant by this as far as, oh, how did they change the experimental conditions? The best right. I could find was a story in her own words saying that they thought they might be onto something, so they kept adjusting their experimental protocol until they, quote-unquote, found all those positives. To put this another way, they changed the conditions until they got the results they wanted to get. Right, right. That's, scientifically speaking, we know is bad bullshit unless you're interested in the conditions of induction in which case fine but that is clearly not the case (laughs) what they're looking for is they're trying to find xmrv genetic sequences in their different samples and so if you're looking for a specific viral genetic sequence in a much larger sequence it's a huge pain in the ass to do that like the analogy of a needle in a haystack is appropriate here because right. you're looking for a very, very small genetic sequence inside of a much, much, much larger one. Right. And it's also very hard to find. Like, you know, you can. I spent a while when I was working in um, corn genetics in Missouri. We tried to make mutants for some of the different genetic families we we're looking at to try and understand more about what different genes did. Mm-hmm. And so when we did that, we would then sequence the DNA and then go through and look. I had to look manually at strings of A's, T's, C's, and G's, tens of thousands of them, looking for individual letters that were wrong and so wow. there's there's a, a computer program that matches up the sequence you found with the reference sequence you know what it's supposed to look like and will highlight areas where there's differences but still it's laborious oh yeah alongside that is a graph showing the actual sequencing peaks which is to say there's different um like oh you can look at the graph and see oh is that an a a t a c or a g and right. if there's an area where it says, oh, there's a mutation here, then I can look at it and say, no, it's just a mess there. It can't tell what it is. It's almost definitely just normal and not a mutant. Basically, to start out not finding any needles in your haystack and then gradually find more and more, what you have to do is get a lot more loose with your definition of what constitutes a needle. Oh, I see. So they started to accept what might have just been sequencing error as actual mutation or something? Based on what they were looking for, that is the only thing I can assume was how they're doing it i get you now so if if i wanted to get more lazy with what i was doing and find yes there are several mutations here i could just look at those and, and not be so stringent with my kind of classifying no that's not a mutation that's actually just a mistake right so in this case it's like oh that that's not viral dna it's just it kind of looks like it but it really isn't and it's like no this is actually the viral dna and now we have it in all 20 samples even though we didn't actually originally so mm-hmm. that's what they're doing that's very spurious yeah a year later 2009 mikovitz and co-workers reported in the journal science which we've established is one of the two biggest in the world that they Mm -hmm. had detected xmrv dna in cfs patients and control subjects it was a big deal i mean it was Mm -hmm. published in science but negative results were published very soon after disputing mikovitz's findings silverman who was a co-author of mikovitz's original xmrv cfs article and the one who had first discovered xmrv 
He was in her original study, and he told the Chicago Tribune that he was, quote, concerned about lab contamination despite our best efforts to avoid it. So right. He, even he was like, yeah, maybe that wasn't it after all. This is weird, yeah. Yeah. Two of the original authors of this paper subsequently reanalyzed the samples used in the research and found that the samples were contaminated with XMRV plasmid DNA, leading hmm. them to publish a partial retraction of their original results. Again, when the word retraction is associated with your work, it ain't good. No, indeed. In December 2011, so a couple years later, after a request by Silverman, the editors of Science retracted the whole damn paper. Wow. So Silverman, who was on the paper, had the good sense to follow the evidence after the fact and actually suggested himself that the paper with his name on it be retracted. Right, right. Which, As again, a co-author, it's crazy. Yeah, if you're a co-author on a paper and you have your paper retracted, I, I think he was actually was the first author. Oh, wow. So if you have one of your own papers retracted, that's like a huge black mark on your career. So if you right. are yourself saying, hey, we need to retract this, that's an especially big deal. You're kind of, yeah, you're sort of calling for your own court hearing or something in that. Like, I need to be reviewed by the ethics board right now. Like, I'm turning myself in. Right. Which is to his credit for sure. Yes. Mikovits, however, stood by it all. In September of 2011, Mikovits was fired from the Whittemore Peterson Institute due to disputes over the control of lab samples and the integrity of her work. So they're starting wow. to look at all the stuff happening being like, wait, what is your deal? This stuff doesn't seem good. And right, right. she got an argument and they ended up firing her. She subsequently was investigated for alleged manipulation of data in her publications related to XMRV. So everything mm. was being called into question. And yeah, mm -hmm. on November 18th, 2011, she was arrested in her Ventura County, California home and jailed oh. for five days for allegations that she stole lab notebooks, a computer and other material from the WPI. Holy moly. By November 28th, after negotiations with the WPI, some lab notes were returned and later criminal charges were dropped mm -hmm. it's very interesting how different this story sounds from Fauci ruined my career and how interesting that the whole bio of hers failed to mention the did crimes and also fraud portion of her career yeah for real oh my gosh she now kind of bills herself as being shunned by the science establishment and being this kind of uh, lone hero trying to spread the truth and you know research science is very cutthroat this is absolutely true that's uh, why right. One of the reasons I bailed out of academia, it's why your life is currently hell. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> but as, as competitive as scientists can be, they do not usually gang up. Certain no. factions within certain fields may have their own internal feuds based on competing theories. Yeah, that's the hottest contention for oh, sure yeah. in general, I'd we've, say. We've for sure experienced that with theories regarding the evolution of social behavior in, in different oh fields. And it does get ugly sometimes. It does, but it's it doesn't involve you know, blackballing people like that. No, um, no. So huge swaths of scientists from all over do not tend to come together to persecute an individual based on their research. Right. If this appears to be happening and the person's research is the cited reason, this is not an underdog story. It is blacklisting unfolding before your very eyes. It's them saying, mm -hmm. hey, this mm -hmm. person is doing a bad thing. Stay away from them. So right. always be skeptical of scientists claiming victimhood because of their theories among other scientists and to clarify yeah, exactly. I'm, not, I'm not under any circumstances saying be skeptical of victims that's not what i'm saying at all i'm saying be <laughs> skeptical of people who claim to have all the answers even when all other experts disagree and who then claim that there's a conspiracy against them that's right, what you well should said. look out for nowadays mikovitz continues to tell her story that xmrv is responsible for basically all cancers and for autism and that it can be found in most vaccines and that it's, mm -hmm. she said that it's, it's able to be spread super easily. It's just all over the place. It's in all our vaccines. It's causing all these diseases. So she is thus a hero of the anti-vaxxer movement. Most recently, she has gone ham with COVID-19 conspiracy shit that I don't even want to give airtime to. She's, yeah, there's call. an upcoming documentary that she's um, that's really heavily focused on her where she just talks about basically any of the COVID-19 conspiracy theories you may have heard about where it came mm -hmm. from and who might benefit from it. She's mm -hmm. behind a lot of it or she's at least on board with a lot of it mm -hmm. uh, she is a peddler of dangerous pseudoscience and many many people will be genuinely harmed by believing her so that is my little tale of judy mikovitz it is calling to mind for me much as the wakefield stuff does and really anything like this how ironic and frustrating it is that folks who do subscribe to conspiracy theories do rest their arguments in what was originally intended as scientific work. Right. And are unwilling to accept 
new or corrected scientific conclusions. It's a lot of the same stuff. Absolutely maddening, yes. It's a lot of the same stuff you and I have said before with regards to people who are strong believers in the paranormal in general. Or like, you know, Bigfoot hunters and stuff. Their main argument against quote-unquote mainstream science is that they're not open-minded enough. But these same people cannot open their minds to the (laughs) idea of their own beliefs potentially not being the actual answer. Like they can't accept something other than what they want to be true. Exactly. This gets us back to another one of our favorite topics on the show, which is magical thinking. Mm-hmm. If it feels like it should be true, it is. Whatever I want to believe is real. We're unfortunately in a time when that is an intensely validated position from many different sides. Uh, in fact, I was just reading an article earlier today in The Atlantic entitled, The Conspiracy Theorists Are Winning. Mm-hmm. Specifically talking about how America is in an unprecedented time of conspiracy theory uh, having its having its way with people's conception of reality. Hmm. And yeah, it's just a very tricky time to have any kind of consensus or any kind of um, discourse that truly brings multiple sides to the table and isn't just an echo chamber at a time when we most badly need to be able to have that kind of uh, dialogue. Yes. Yeah, it's oh, it's it's really disheartening and really scary at the same time. Exactly. And yeah. So I guess our general take on all of this stuff is to, as always, be skeptical of things. Whatever you're hearing, if you hear something that sounds really dramatic or really ground shaking and stuff, no matter what it is, it's always worth questioning it and and looking into it a little more more closely. And by by a similar token, you know, take some time and really check yourself as far as what you feel like you understand about the world and what you feel like you want to have be real about the world. You know, it's fun to even have things that you know you can prove as true, but that you also like knowing are true or things that you know are true, but you don't like knowing right. are true. And just sort of use that to calibrate uh, spaces in your belief schema that you maybe don't have as much uh, evidence to support. It's a very important process because I think everyone, everyone is susceptible to this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Before we wrap up this episode, let's just take one last look at this thing that came up a lot in both of these segments, which is a connection between vaccines and autism, but more importantly, a connection between autism and stigma around that. Absolutely. So the reason folks like us tend to get so damned combative when it comes to the anti-vaccination movement is for sure the impact of diseases that could easily be prevented and the children who might die without ever having had a say in the matter. That's terrible. Absolutely. It's also the message buried in that movement's thesis that autism is somehow a bad thing. People with autism are exactly that. People with their own hopes and dreams and opinions and talents and fuck you so very much for not accepting <laughs> anybody who for who they are. Yes. At the end of the day, the anti-vax notion that quote-unquote vaccines are bad because they cause autism isn't just untrue. It translates to, I would rather have my child die of a preventable disease than have a child with autism. And no fucking way are we okay with that. No, indeed. Yeah, well said, Jake. Incidentally, if you or someone you know is or is caring for a person with autism, please do consider donating to the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, which is a nonprofit organization run by and for autistic people. ASAN was created to serve as a national grassroots disability rights organization for the autistic community, advocating for systems change and ensuring that the voices of autistic people are heard in matters of policy and in matters of real social change. Their staff works to advance civil rights, to support self-advocacy in all its forms, and to improve public perceptions of autism. ASAN's members and supporters include autistic adults and youth, cross-disability advocates, and non-autistic family members, professionals, educators, and friends. And we know they'd love your support as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you aren't okay with people with autism, I mean, you know, I'm amazed you're still listening. And uh, I would suggest that you turn the show off and go look inward for a while because mm-hmm. uh, it says a lot about you and it can be changed. You can change your outlook on life. <laughs> yes. You know, learn to uh, love the world a little more, buddy. So it all ties back into the idea of opening your mind a little more to just how the world is exactly and um 
yeah next week we'll be back with another rep about something else probably get <laughs> real goofy at you yeah exactly and we thank you for joining us thank you very much and we'll see you then bye bye bye